Hello, my friends. This is life coach Mike Chargman, and welcome to an episode of Mike's Search for Meaning. I'm after some big questions. Why are we here? What makes a fulfilling life? How can we grow individually and collectively? Each episode, I'll dive deep with leaders who are doing great work in the world and see how they organize their life. Books read, value systems, resources used, and stories that show how each of you can create the life and the world of your dreams. My guest today is my dear friend, Ingrid Edstrom. Ingrid can be connected with in many different ways. She has a personal website, ingridedstrom.com. You can also connect with her on her LinkedIn page. Her business, which is called Priestess of Profits, also has a website. She is the founder of a wonderful organization called the Accounting Alchemy Network. And she leads several different roundtables and communities that really empower everyone to show up as the best version of themselves. All of these different ways you can connect with Ingrid are linked in the show notes. And additionally, as you know, I always raise awareness for an organization of my guest choice. Ingrid has selected the organization called the Post Growth Institute. So please join me in donating to an excellent cause. I invited Ingrid to be on this show because I admire and look up to her in almost any way imaginable. When we get on calls together, Ingrid usually jokes with me, let's save the world today. And I think a lot of people say things in passing or without really meaning them, but Ingrid really stands for all of the change that I yearn for in this world. So in this discussion, Ingrid breaks down A little bit of how did we end up in this hot mess where we have the climate change crisis, racism is, is in my estimation, also a crisis right now, patriarchy, like all these different things that have brought us, I'll throw capitalism in there, and all these different systems that, while they probably weren't created with negative intent, have caused a lot of destruction and damage to our species and to our planet. Ingrid has a fundamental understanding of how we have arrived in this hot mess of a situation, but also how we can progress and move forward in a way that is sustainable, not only for humans as a species, but also for our planet. And it brings me a lot of hope and joy having conversations with folks like Ingrid, who aren't just finger pointing and blaming, but also have really actionable solutions and ways that we can move forward. So every single time that I talk to Ingrid, I feel equal parts challenged to improve and to be more of a solution for how we can move forward as a planet and as a species, and also feel really seen, heard, and loved and and connected to my heart energy, which is a really potent and powerful combo. In my estimation, that is Ingrid's superpower. And She brings so much to the table. I tried to encapsulate as much as possible in the hour and 45 minutes that we spent together. So I'm going to let Ingrid take it from here. And with all of this said, let's go ahead and settle in. Take a deep breath. And enjoy this conversation with Ingrid Edstrom right now. One more quick note for this conversation. There were unfortunately connectivity issues throughout the conversation. And it was hard to chop it up because a lot of what was being discussed in the moments of connectivity issues was 
vital for the interview. So please bear with us at the moments of disconnection and please enjoy this conversation with Ingrid Edstrom. Ingrid, at long last, I, I get to say the words, welcome to Mike's Search for Meaning. Thanks so much for having me, Mike. This is great. We've been <laughs> talking about doing this for a while. It, it might be already at a year. It, it feels like we've been connected for quite some time and, and you're one of the rare people that as soon as I start talking or started talking to you for the first time, I felt like we were able to drop in together quickly. And something that warms my heart about the work that you do and who you are is, I mean, you've really reshaped the way that I look at the accounting profession. You really have. And I, I don't think I was aware that there was this little pocket in the universe somewhere where there were conscious accountants who are really actively trying to create a, a profession that is really contributing to the betterment of our species and, and the planet. And I, I just never would have thought that accounting belonged in the same <laughs> sentiment, same sentence as that. And that's largely a testament to what you're doing. So before we even get into anything, thank you for who you are and what you are doing in the world. Well, thank you. That's super sweet. I'm I'm really excited that that little pocket in our universe is getting larger quickly. Yeah. It's catching on. So yeah, we'll probably be seeing more of that coming up as we're putting some active attention and awareness and intention towards it. Beautiful. And I, I know that it's been largely grassroots and, and that you have been really methodical about the way your your attention to it and the people that you're inviting into this space and the community and uh, that speaks volumes to your level of care and commitment to the work so putting a pin in that for now the the way i start almost every interview and the way i would love to start with you is by asking what was it like at your dinner table when you were growing up oh wow at my dinner table when i was growing up who it's a bit of a loaded question for me because I didn't have the greatest relationship with my family growing up. And so my experience at my dinner table growing up was generally trying to make myself as small as possible to avoid confrontation. And yeah, there's not a whole lot of very pleasant dinner table memories for me. Yeah. Making yourself small as possible, did that show up in your initial career attempts and, and like as you became an adult how did how did that start to i know that if i backtrack just a tiny bit here i know that the the person you are today is is someone who's deeply committed to self-discovery and inner work and creating a really a culture a planetary culture even that is inclusive of all and I, I wonder how much of that you would attribute to challenges that you had as a child. Probably quite a bit, actually. I mean, as much as adversity <laughs> is challenging, it, it makes us stronger in a lot of ways and really pointed out to me the things in our world that, that I would like to change so that we can be the change we want to see in the world and not feeling effective safety and belonging, even in my family home growing up, I, I want to bring that to more people in this world. I want to create that with people and help people understand how they can create it for themselves 
and what that really looks like and that are not feeling that does not mean that we are broken. It's that the the society that we have been indoctrinated into from a very young age, which is largely based in colonialism, patriarchy, and institutionalized racism, that those ideas are toxic to our very being. And it does not have to be that way. And that's one of the main things that we're working to heal in our world right now. And there's so many different ways of going about that. And it's largely an individual experience, but it also needs to be a collective and community experience. We need to be in right relationship with each other and with our planet. Hmm. So there's, I mean, this is really a beautiful way to get right into the the meaty and juicy stuff that we were (laughs) teeing up before we hit record here. I, I would love to... There's two different things that are going through my head right now. The, this felt sense of safety and belonging is something that's really important to me. And I guess we can start there. We, we've got plenty of time and this is a long form conversation. So when did that become something that you were consciously, like? in my estimation, every human is constantly scanning their environment for ways that they can establish safety and scanning for threat and, and for belonging. We all long for that. But for many of us, it's not conscious. And I, I know that in my own personal journey, it started to come to a head in my mid-20s that I was really looking for this felt sense of belonging and safety where I felt like I could be all of me and not these compartmentalized versions of myself in in as many spaces as I was in. When When did that become something that was conscious for you? Like when when did you become aware that you wanted to and, and start moving towards those felt senses of safety and belonging? You know, it's it's interesting the idea of conscious because there's different levels of consciousness. Because mm-hmm. there's awareness and then there's being aware that we're aware. <laughs> so there's there's the unconscious and the subconscious and then there's the conscious and I would say that it's only in the last handful of years that I've been really, really conscious of it, where it's like, oh, no, I'm aware that I'm aware of this and I'm able to put it to words. Whereas prior to that, even if it was a felt sense of something that I was craving, something that I was looking for, it it was maybe one of those elusive things that I couldn't quite put my finger on. I didn't know how to explain why I just didn't quite feel right. So I think that the full conscious awareness probably came just a handful of years ago in some of the reading I was doing. I was reading books like Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. (laughs) So, and, oh, Daring Greatly by Brene Brown. That was a big one that really gets into those ideas of guilt versus shame and belonging. And I haven't read Atlas for the Heart yet. I've heard that Atlas for the Heart really gets deeper into those ideas of belonging. But that's the tricky thing with understanding and and conscious understanding and language is that it takes time sometimes. And sometimes we have to learn these ideas from others in order to fully be like, oh, that, that's that thing that I've been trying to figure out and trying to explain, even if we know it deep in our being for a long time before that. I mean, I can think back to instances in college and high school 
you know, back when our prefrontal cortex is still kind of <laughs> finishing its formation in those teen and early 20s years where we we knew that we were looking for something. I knew that I was looking for something, but I didn't quite understand what it was. And I didn't understand that my lived experience was not everyone's lived experience, that that there was no such thing as normal for one. <laughs> <laughs> and what it took to find others who could relate to my experience in a well way. And what does that look like? And I saw a video a handful of months ago, just as Brene Brown's book, Atlas for the Heart was coming out. I saw kind of a video preview for Atlas for the Heart. And she was talking about the idea of belonging anywhere and nowhere. Mm -hmm. That real belonging really shows up when we get to the point where we don't have to feel like we need to belong with the other people who are around us, that if we don't fit with those people, we can still fit within ourselves, we can fit within our environment. And that's something that we have to cultivate and create for ourselves. And hearing that idea, I'm like, why are we not teaching this in school? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a past guest of mine, her name is Kat Tweedy, who is creating a, a beautiful, the project is underway and it's called Sleep Awake Camp. And it's teaching 18 to 24 year olds these relational skills that you're talking about. And I believe, I, I wanna fact check myself here, but I believe that one of the things that she has on our website is that we spend 18,000 hours learning mathematics, sciences, history, all these different things about the externals, which are important to learning about our history and uh, different ways that our mind can work. But we we spend, I don't know, maybe less than four hours in school learning about relational capacities, emotional intelligence, navigating conflict, what belonging means or is. And yeah. it's it breaks my heart. And it also warms my heart to know that there's people like you and her and many others who are not only bringing awareness to these challenges, but really doing something about it. And my question for you right now is, where does accounting belong in all of this? Because that's that's why I was drawn to you in the first place is I said, wow, that's really interesting that she's looking at all these different emotional capacities and therapeutic modalities that I'm really interested in, but she's doing it in the accounting world. I didn't even know that that was a thing. So where does where does accounting fit in all this? Why do you think it's a good place to deploy so many of these tools? Yeah, so accounting professionals have have gotten kind of a bad rap because everyone kind of sees the superficial being counter the the work side of it of you know doing tax returns and bookkeeping and audits and they see that as being a very dry linear hard kind of thing and that that's somehow all accountants are and oftentimes people forget to look at the humans behind that work and what that work can actually mean and be and do what is it that we are accounting for generally money generally finance what is money and finance money and finance aren't real 
Those are human constructs that somebody made up <laughs> a long, long time ago to the point where we take them for granted at this point. But they're stories. They are stories. And we've allowed these stories to become a cornerstone of our culture to the point where we wouldn't quite know how to function without them at this point. But nonetheless, they are stories. Not just that, but the value of things, the price we put on things is largely subjective. The worth, the value that something has is for each of us to dis discern for ourselves. It's not a hard fixed thing, especially since it's constantly changing. I mean, with inflation and the way that our economy is manipulated and controlled by our governance. And there are so many complex pieces to all of this that many people just don't quite look at as deeply as we could. And if we are able to build our awareness around some of these systems and ask ourselves some deeper questions and challenge some of our limiting beliefs of what if it didn't have to be that way? What if what I've been telling myself or what if what I've been told since I was a child doesn't have to be true? What if there's another way of going about it? What if there's a better way of going about it? And when we think about our culture globally or just here in the United States, however you want to look at it, there's currently a very... We've, we've been marinating in a lot of ideas that have not been working for us. Colonialism, institutionalized racism, patriarchal ideas, it, it's not working for our society. And right now, our money systems and our economy is built upon those ideas. And because of that, we have systems set up that are unsustainable. They are extractive of our planet, they are exploitive of our people, and they are based in a model that has to grow and grow and grow and grow on a finite planet. That is the very definition of unsustainable. We cannot continue to do things this way. There are things that must change. And so what we've been looking at within the Accounting Alchemy Network is bringing together the human beings who are the stewards of the narrative of money and finance in our world, accounting professionals, to start changing that story to be more regenerative. And the reason I use the word regenerative and not sustainable is because the word sustainable is sustaining things as they are. We're past the point where we can do that. We have repair to do. We need to regenerate and see what we can do to give back to the systems that we've been taking from and heal our world because our world needs healing. Our people need healing. Relationships need healing. We need to no longer have throwaway products and throwaway people because if we continue the way that we're going, we're going to have a throwaway planet and we kind of live here. <laughs> hmm. There's there's a lot here. And so I, I normally wouldn't bring this up this early in the conversation, but 
I think it's very fitting for what you have teed up so far. And every episode I ask my guest, which is you, of course, for an organization that you would like to raise awareness for. And you have selected the organization Post Growth Institute. And one of the things that I'm hearing in your response is that capitalism as a system is extractive and is going to at some point be the termination or part of the termination of our planet, this place that we call home. And so Post-Growth Institute, I think, is looking at, I don't know all that much about it. I, I only know because you've brought it into my field of awareness, but it's looking at a post-capitalist economic system, I believe. And I'm wondering if you could explain what that is. And as a tie-in, just maybe what are some beliefs that you're wanting to birth into our culture around finances and money so that they are regenerative and not destructive? Yeah. So I want to preface this where um, I'm not necessarily the expert in the things that I am spouting off. I'm standing on the shoulders of giants um, or others who, who I have learned these ideas from. And so there's a lot of really amazing resources out there that are better at educating around these topics than I currently am. I am still learning a lot of this myself. So I joined the Post-Growth Institute as a volunteer just over a year ago when the executive director reached out to me personally and asked me to join their board. So that was super exciting for me. So I'm the treasurer of the Post-Growth Institute, and we are a nonprofit organization that focuses on education and experimentation around post-capitalist economy. And... When I talk about post-capitalist economy, I, I really like to frame it up so that we're not using the word to describe what we're trying to get away from. So saying post-capitalism by its very definition is built on capitalism. And that's, I'm trying to shift away from that, but that's what most people, because we've been swimming in a capitalist fishbowl for so long now that many of us think that it's the only way of doing money and finance, that it's the only way of trading the goods and services that we need to survive. And so shifting away from the capitalist, you know, what is post-capitalist? What is a system that could possibly replace capitalism? The short answer is we're working on that. That's the point. And the easiest way to I guess, name what that set system is, is a circular economy or a full circle economy. So when we think about biomimicry, which is a biology term here, I'm outing myself as a biology major right now. Um, <laughs> when we think about ecosystems, in an ecosystem, nothing is wasted. Everything eats something and everything gets reused. Right now, we are in a system where money is the only thing in our world that is not subject to entropy. It's not allowed to go bad. As a matter of fact, instead of going bad, it somehow gains value when it's allowed to just sit hoarded away. And as a result, we have a system where there are a handful of people, a very small minority of people in our world who are hoarding the majority of our world's wealth. And 
becoming richer by simply hoarding it. They're dragons sitting on a you know gigantic pile of money that they don't need. It's it's false security. True security is not wealth. True security is relationship, and not just that, but also to to steal my favorite line from Charles Eisenstein, his wonderful book, Sacred Economics, he talks about how the meaning of life, the purpose of life is not to simply live in maximum security and comfort. The purpose of life is to create that which is beautiful to us. And I like to add and share it with others. So as we're working to create financial systems that are more in alignment with natural systems, with the way that the world is meant to work, we need financial systems that flow more naturally. And we need to figure out what those systems are going to look like, and we need to practice them. And so what the Post-Growth Institute does, we have some core pillars, our three main pillars that we really focus on are um, sociocracy. So we are a sociocratic organization which I like to, to, a lot of people haven't even heard of sociocracy before. Sociocracy is a step beyond democracy because in democracy, majority wins. You vote and, you know, 50% or more, whatever the, the line is, you're going to end up with half of your people or maybe almost half of your people being kind of unhappy with that decision and not having great buy-in. Whereas in sociocracy, it is more consent and consensual, <laughs> trying to come to consensus. And people are encouraged to voice objections when they can't live with something so that we continue to talk about it until we develop a solution that everyone can live with. And a lot of people would, you know, just kind of toss it aside out of hand saying, oh, that could never work. That would take forever. When you see it in practice, it is amazing how quickly we are able to come together with consensus decisions. It is absolutely mind-blowing how well it can work sometimes. And it's worth a try. And, you know, some sociocratic organizations have, you know, consensus minus one or two so that if there's a couple of people who are just, you know, hard nosing and, and, you know, being oppositional for opposition's sake, because, hey, we're all human and sometimes we get stuck in a rut and don't want don't want to play effectively with others. There are ways of going about it. But the main idea is that we can we can start having better decision making tools and be able to move forward with some of these ideas. And another one of our pillars in the Post-Growth Institute is lean testing. So really trying to test out things in a small way. And that's what the Post-Growth Institute is really doing with a lot of the systems that we are working on within circular economy. We are we are lean testing these ideas to see what does this look like? How can we demonstrate how these things are working in a very real way? I guess any questions about those before hopping into? <laughs> I, I would love to hear you keep going. I, I do have an observation that I, I know that you bring into your work a lot. And I think especially under a sociocracy, 
yeah. one of the beliefs that we are probably challenging, which I think is built into capitalism, is that a lot of exchanges result in some sort of zero sum game where one person wins and the other person loses. And yes. something that I'm in touch with in this moment, as you explain what sociocracy is, is that when there is discourse that is allowed, there is what naturally probably emerges is that there are win for all solutions that mm -hmm. you don't have to, you might not be getting what you think you wanted from the outset, but both parties are getting from the exchange something that is considered a win. And I find that to be, whether it's in internal work or in the way that the world works or external systems, I find that to be a beautiful a belief to be indoctrinated into rather than what we have been conditioned to believe, which is that you need to, to win. And in order to win, there needs to be losers and do whatever it takes to beat those losers. Yeah, I started learning about zero sum game just a handful of years ago from a couple educators within the accounting space. And it, it blew my mind. You know, when we start looking at these ideas of zero-sum game and how those biases are implanted into our thinking from a young age, that in order to win, somebody else has to lose, and how it sets us up to be in competition. And it can be such a small thing to just shift to a win-win mindset, and at the same time, these habits of zero-sum thinking are so ingrained in our culture and trying to play a win-win game with someone else who's playing a win-lose game. Mm. <laughs> it's interesting because it really, at the foundation of all of it is ideas around consent, being in consensual relationship, making sure that we are in right relationship with ourselves, with our environments, with the ideas and thought forms and constructs that we've been educated around and, um, you know, creating new ideas and thought forms and constructs if we're not in consensual relationship with the ones we've been taught. And then also with others. And with that often comes power dynamics and how important it is for us to start being more aware of the power dynamics that we are just subconsciously swimming in, most of which are rooted in colonialism, institutionalized racism, and patriarchy. The power dynamics that are all around us, whether it be race, gender, wealth, social, there are so many layers and levels and we don't even think about them most of the time because we've been around them for so long. And just bringing more awareness to our emotional selves and our gut intuition and how do we notice when we're not in consensual relationship with ourselves, when something doesn't quite feel right. And oftentimes, just because there's a power dynamic in play. Somebody exercising power over someone or something. And what we're in the midst of right now is we're trying to shift a lot of these ideas in our world is a really big paradigm shift, trying to go from ideas around power over to power with. 
rather than you and I having a power dynamic dynamic between us where one of us is always trying to one up the other and be on top. And that's how somehow we, we feel good about ourselves is that one of us is better or more, or I don't know, something than the other that we've created a relationship where we have power with each other. We are empowering each other so that together we have the power to do amazing things in the world. And by empowering each other, we create a rising tide that raises all ships. So again, there's a million places we could go here, but one one thing that I'm absolutely in touch with is that I am a heterosexual, cisgender, white male. Mm -hmm. And in my estimation, I think that someone in my seat, it's probably most imperative that we do our work around this. And if I may make a, a broad generalization here, we're probably the least likely white, cisgender, heterosexual men are probably the least likely to be partaking in these types of dialogues, conversations, and looks inward, especially privilege. I'm an upper middle class as well. So someone who's in a real place of privilege, who has the deck, quote unquote, stacked in my favor. The, the question that I have behind all of this that I don't necessarily have a, a great canned answer to, but I, I certainly can feel into it and I, I'm happy to have a dialogue back and forth around it, is how am, how am I also being hurt by this system? Because I don't think that racial injustice and capitalism are only affecting people who are of less means and people of color. I think that I am probably being infected by this system as well. And I think it's important for us to hear wh why that is. Yeah. So... You really, really hit on something that I feel like is a really important topic for everyone to be addressing right now is that these big constructs that we're swimming in, the ones that aren't working for us, the colonialism, institutionalized racism, patriarchal, and there's there's probably others that I'm not naming, mm -hmm. they impact all of us. And whether we had ancestors that were perpetuating directly these issues or not if you know if we had ancestors who were slavers or yeah were were taking land from indigenous peoples there's there's layers and layers of trauma that need to needs to be healed in our world and whether that's direct to our ancestral line or not there's been a lot of assumptions and constructs built around these ideas and the sum of those assumptions and constructs ends up weighing on all of us in internalized oppression, where we are taught to be certain ways from the time that we are young, whether we consent to it or not. I mean, when you were a tiny, tiny kid, did you consent to being a cis white male? Those are labels that were put on you. Are those labels that you want to subscribe to? You might be in consensual because they're familiar and it's become habit. Where did these ideas of cis or trans come from? Ideas of black, white, brown, 
purple, whatever color you want, you know, someone at some point came up with these ideas because they made sense to them to explain the world around them. And some of them work in some ways, but it's one thing to be a white bodied person. It's another thing to look at white and black and Hispanic as race and how those things change the decision-making in our society. I can look at a flower and say that flower is yellow, but that doesn't make that flower more or less pretty than another flower. It doesn't make that flower, you know, necessarily able to grow in one place and not another place. So why was it that at some point in our human history, we developed this concept of race and it's because someone at some point decided that that's what was necessary to maintain their power over others. And even though that's not what you and I are consciously trying to do today in our white bodies, we've still been brought up in a world where those power dynamics are part of the water that we're swimming in. And we need to figure out how to change the water chemistry. And that takes a lot of awareness. It takes a lot of intention. It takes a lot that we need to do to shift some of this is start having those conversations, start making it so that those conversations are no longer taboo. We need to be talking about these things on a regular basis. These need to be our dinner table conversations rather than small talk about the weather (laughs) and current events and, you know, oh my gosh, what was on the news? We could be shifting the things that we can talk about. It's a cultural shift and we get to make our culture. Yeah. I know before we, before we jumped on, so I could keep asking you questions all day long because I really, you have so much insight. And at one point you said, I'm, I'm not an expert on this, but here are my thoughts. And I'm thinking to myself, you're quite eloquent and thoughtful. So I want to, I would want to hear your thoughts on anything that you've taken a look at. But anyway, before, before we jumped on, you said that you would want to maybe ask me some questions and hear my thoughts. And I, I wanted to give you the opportunity to, if you wanted to turn this around and ask me anything, I'm here for it. Otherwise, I, I've been loving this, enjoying it. I'm happy to yeah. keep going. Happy to. Okay. So my favorite question to ask people is, Mike, what's your superpower? Ooh, this is, this is the question that you wanted me to ask you too. So I'm going <laughs> to return the serve at some point. Hmm. My, my sister is engaged. So he's going to be my brother-in-law in very soon. And I, I consider him my brother and I, I love him. We were on a vacation together recently and he bought me a mug. My wife and I love mugs and he bought me a mug that says be the light on it. And I, it's my favorite mug. I, I have it every time it's done in the dishwasher. It's the mug that I use first with my cup of coffee. And what I internalize be the light to be in and what I think my superpower is, is I generally, I think, see the best in other people, the the best in situations. And so I 
a lot of people in my orbit, if we were to talk about these types of things, would already probably be resigned to this is just the way it is. These are the systems we operate in. What am I supposed to do but put my head down and just keep marching on? And I see the best in them when they're saying that. And I also am able to be in touch with what you have been so beautifully articulating in this conversation. These are all human-made systems at one point that were created that I, I don't believe necessarily were only created with terrible intentions, but none, nonetheless are what you've said, extractive. They honor power to only a, a hand-selected few who are mostly white. And I really fundamentally believe that we can change these systems and create regenerative solutions, much like you've been beautifully putting out here. So I think that uh, my optimism and my hope and my commitment to win for all is inherent in me. I think from a really young age, I've been in touch with that. And I think there's the baked into that, there's deep empathy and care for other people. And yeah, I think every single time I pass a person on the street, when I'm at my best, I can, I can be in touch with the, the full humanity of that person, their lived experience, where they come from, what their story is. There's a, there, an author by the name of Susan Cain who wrote my favorite book. It's called Quiet. It's one of my favorite books. And it's probably the one that most impacted the way I see my personality as a maybe gentle sideline type of leader who is emerging into different types of leadership. But anyway, she, she has this concept of thinking about people's captions as you pass them, like uh, really understanding the totality of who they are and their stories. And that is both a skill that I've cultivated with lots of work, but also I think something that in a lot of ways I was born with my, my ability to see that the, the whole, the whole other person, regardless of who I'm talking to. So I hope that that answers your question of what my superpower is. That's, that's the best that in this moment that I could articulate it. That's beautiful. So I guess if you were to sum up your superpower in one word, what would you name it? Would it, would it be light? Mm, yeah. Love feels too trite or catch all. Mm -hmm. But I think light does feel better that I could we could experiment with it a little bit. But I yeah. do like light because light has it's a multi layered. There's several connotations that light could have. And so like yeah. another another way I think of light is that, you know, having discussions around I've interviewed folks on this podcast who are doing transformational leadership development work with people who are experiencing homelessness and uh, people who are incarcerated. And I think that there's in one, another way of being the light is to put the spotlight on these other, on all the, on all of humanity, that it's not just about Michael having the, this amazing individual life, like whatever that even means. It's about, living in a truly equitable and just society that honors the humanity of everyone that is in it. Yeah. That's beautiful. So how do you apply that to your work? Mm. Yeah. 
I think, well, my work right now, as you know, is, is multifaceted. Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll, I'll probably just go with, because I, it's really not that challenging in coaching for me, especially in a one-on-one -on -one arrangement for me to be in touch with the wholeness of the person I'm speaking to. But on the accounting side of things, how does that show up for me? I've had a really deeply grooved story and pathway in my brain around accounting being this kind of what you've said, this like dead end, meaningless, just helping the rich get richer type of profession. And, and the way one of the greatest sources of growth that I have experienced is that I don't see that as the case. I can, I can truly say now that if I were in any field, there would be some way that the highest expression of myself and my genius would be able to come out in that work. And so on the accounting side of things, it, it's multifaceted, but one would be if I'm working on a particularly dry subject matter, which in a lot of cases I am, I'm doing like private equity or hedge fund types of tax returns, which are cranking out large amounts of technical information. I might say, Google one of the investors and just take a look at their face and say, this, this is a person that I get to help in this moment. So that's, that's one way. Another might just be having one, at least one real conversation. If I'm in the office or otherwise, just reach out to one person and talk to them because I'm always working with other humans and say, what's really going on in your life? How, how are you doing? What's, I know that we mostly talk about work here. We, we we're getting paid to solve problems and, and do tax returns for our clients, but what's, what's going on in your world? I'm like endlessly curious about you as a person. And that isn't something that now is tucked away only into my coaching life or outside of work. It's something that I am wanting to infuse into my work, whatever that might be. And so it feels really liberating to be able to say this right now that in what otherwise might be a pretty technical profession that is full of some dry work, I, I'm always able to connect with other people. And I think maybe if I'm in accounting for long-term, an aspirational goal of mine would be to actively be helping businesses who are having dialogues like we are having right now with some of the the numbers that can make their dreams become a reality and so that our profession as accountants is helping those small businesses that really want to make a difference and want to create these new regenerative systems that i would be able to use my skill set in accounting and with numbers to help these businesses rather than maybe the older outdated models of business that are also extractive and doing damage to our species and the planet that is beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. And how does that show up in Mike's search for meaning? I guess if you are searching for meaning, what have you found? Is light the meaning? Where's, where's the meaning? Hmm. Meaning takes on a lot of connotations for me. And, and one way actually is just in this moment, as you asked me that question and I sat quietly for 15 seconds, I just felt 
this, and I still am in touch with it right now, there's this opening and swelling in my heart. And so in, in one way, it's just, that's, that's meaning right there is that, that felt sense in my heart of deep connection, deep connection. That's, I think that's probably one of the words that underlies a lot of what I'm up to is, is wanting really deep connection in my life. And there's a lot of ways that we could establish that in, in terms of the type of people I interview, um, they, they address healing and wholeness from lots of different levels. And, and I, some of my swipes at this include what we eat, how we relate to each other, how we relate to ourselves, how do we understand the systems that we are functioning and operating in? What does it mean to create cultures of, of connection and belonging? And I, I think that, yeah, I, I don't know. That's, that's really the word that, that most indicates meaning for me is when I'm feeling really connected and centered and that could be in really big and small ways. But I, I know that if I were to walk outside right now and pass a blooming flower, that would be meaningful. And every time I pass a human, that's meaningful. And to feel the wind, the breeze on my face, those are like when I'm at my best, that's that's the juice of life right there. It's not the the things that which I'm I'm still deeply swimming in and it comes up all the time is like wanting to build a big following, wanting to make the most money, et cetera, et cetera. I try and catch myself on those more quickly and, and remind myself of what the real juice of life is. And it's, it's what, what we've been talking about so far today. That's beautiful. I love this idea. What I'm hearing from you is so often when people are looking for meaning, they're asking the question, what does it mean? And they're seeking an answer as if when they find the answer that they're just going to know and that their search will be over. And I feel like you reframed it so beautifully in that you find meaning all of the time. Meaning is like food. We need it every day. Yes. <laughs> So we always have to keep searching for it so that we can find it again and again and again. And it's not its not that we don't know what it is or where to find it. It's yeah. that we still need to cultivate it in our lives. And it's a perpetual cultivation. And it sounds like that's what you're doing with this podcast mm -hmm. is finding and cultivating meaning and then sharing it with the world, which is so beautiful. You're sharing your light with the world. Thank you so much for that beautiful work that you're doing <laughs> thank you as well i your your questioning and your line of inquiry is always a beautiful mirror to be faced with and expansive and challenging in all of the right and good ways so i i'm grateful that i took the pause there and said let's let ingrid ask me some questions because yeah. it's been it's full of beautiful insight and, and reflection for me, it's important to be, that's the thing with meaning is like you said, it's, it's being imbued in any given moment and it's not this destination that we arrive at. So thank you. Thank you for that. My pleasure. This is what can happen when two coaches get together to have a deep <laughs> conversation. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yes, it is. And we haven't, I believe so far, ha we haven't fallen into the pitfall that I see with a lot of coaches and getting to 
kind of new agey and coach speaky. It, it's felt very sensible and practical. And is, is there anything else in this moment that you're wanting to ask me or any bow that you're wanting to put on this part of the conversation so far? Because I have a million things that I would love to ask you. Oh, I don't know. Now my brain is like new agey and coach speaky. Like I'm trying to, is that a challenge? I'm trying to think of what new agey coach speaky things we could delve into and nothing's <laughs> coming to my mind. <laughs> might be for the best. It might be for the best for the listener. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I think one of the things that I am in touch with that if you said I've got nothing, continue asking me questions. One of the oh, I'm sure I'll come up with more questions at some yeah, point. <laughs> uh, and I'm here for it, but Definitely one of the things I wanted to ask you is ways that you have developed your capacity emotionally and maybe somatically and spiritually as well. So you've named a couple of different books. It seems like, like me, Brene Brown has had a, a big influence on you as well. And I'm, I'm just wondering if there's other, whether it's modalities, teachers, mentors, books, anything that comes to mind or heart in this moment or resources that have been helpful for you in expanding your emotional capacity? Because I think that that's what underlies a lot of what we are talking about is our ability to, as one person and in a collective space, to be able to hold all of these things that would otherwise be too big and that we'd feel resigned and maybe dejected and despondent and yeah, like not want to show up to life and just that's that's where we put our head down. Yeah. Wow. There's so many. So I guess the, the main self-care modality that I implement is meditation. And in particular, I really enjoy Joe Dispenza's guided meditations. I've been to a Joe Dispenza week-long advanced retreat, and I'm going to an advanced follow-up retreat coming up here in May. So by the time this is released, you'll be able to ask me how that went. And I found that to be a really, really good practice for me in my life. And when people get into various different kinds of meditation practice, you know, it's similar to exercise. Different things are going to feel right to different bodies and personalities. And we don't all have to do it the same way. Some people prefer Zen or just mindfulness, having an app or however it works for you. But one thing that I've really started to do over the last couple of years, particularly as I've gotten involved with the Post-Growth Institute and the Pachamama Alliance, a practice that is built into the culture of both of those organizations that I have since built into the Accounting Alchemy Network and also into my client relationships is starting every meeting with a grounding and a personal check-in. And taking that opportunity for, you know, whether it be just, you know, hey, we're in a hurry, let's just take a few breaths together and arrive intentionally in this place in this time and just be in our bodies for a hot second, or whether it's taking five minutes for a deeper guided journey together to be able to center and ground and fully arrive and acknowledge the ecosystems that were part of the work that we're doing together, acknowledge the indigenous peoples who have stewarded these ecosystems for millennia before white settlers came to wherever we might happen to be, particularly if we're in North America. There's there's a lot of, of important pieces to touch on. But from a neurological perspective, 
what that does for us is huge because when we enter a meeting already stressed and thinking about the things that we were just trying to wrap up and we're in a hurry and that sort of thing and we're setting ourselves up for failure and particularly as we're we're often diving into conversations thinking about the problems and i want to help to shift for just a moment. I, I I dropped earlier the the three pillars of the Post-Growth Institute, and I named two of them earlier. I'm going to touch on the third one now in yeah. case anyone's like, oh, what was the third one? Glad you listened to the whole podcast now, aren't you? <laughs> Close that loop, Ingrid. <laughs> yeah, the third one is asset-based approaches. And it's a pretty simple idea. It's a pretty simple little neurological trick. It's simply the idea of putting the positive first. And what we recognize when we put the positive first, if I were to come to you, Mike, with an issue that needs to be resolved, checked in about something like that, and, you know, like, say, say that there was a scheduling hiccup or something like that, and I were to come to you with... Oh, hey, Mike, my schedule's going crazy. I need to shift this, that, and the other. And, you know, I am really excited for our, our, our talk together. <laughs> Whereas if I come to you and say, hey, Mike, I'm really excited for our talk together coming up. I've had a scheduling hiccup. Can we look at this other date? Yeah. In the first example, approaching that conversation, it automatically puts us into our limbic brain. Fight, flight, freeze, fawn setting us up for an emotional response where we're more likely to not approach that situation in a healthy way. We might get angry or upset. We might, you know, we might be perfectly well-regulated and be like, oh, it it might just be a, oh, bummer, you know, scheduling shift, but there might be that kind of response to it. And how many can we handle in a day? (laughs) Mm -hmm. If that's what we have over and over again, it gets exhausting. Whereas if I come at it with the positive first, it puts us into the right hemisphere of our brain, the creative thinking side of our brain and sets us up for success in thinking of creative creative approaches in a positive way. So when I enter a client meeting, I want my clients in their creative right side of their brain. (laughs) And so I set up the agenda of that meeting to help that happen by grounding us and getting us centered on ourselves and also by doing a real human check-in. And I want to offer an example in the form of a story. There's a client that I've been working with. I, I do still do occasionally, quote unquote, accounting work in the niche that I specialize in, the tours and activities industry. For the most part, it's business strategy and financial workflow design. And I've been working on a pretty big transition from uh, for a company that is, is moving away from their homegrown accounting and booking reservation software that was built for them 30 years ago in DOS. And they're transitioning over to a new booking solution and QuickBooks Online. And they needed to integrate those two softwares together. And the booking solution said, if you want to do this right, Ingrid is the expert who can help you set it up. So I've been working with this wonderful client and there was one day that we got on the line and I asked her, how are you feeling? She's like, I am really stressed. 
And I said, okay, thank you. How about we do a grounding and, you know, shift it a little bit. And, and even before we do the grounding, just remembering that everything that we're stressed about is data in a machine telling a story. None of it's real. Our loved ones are okay. Our teams are okay. No one is hurt except for the stress that the story is causing. So if we can take a breath and just remember for a moment that it's a story and remember that we're solving a puzzle and sometimes solving a puzzle can be frustrating and that we'll figure it out. And when we figure it out, it's going to be really exciting. (laughs) And she's like, oh, I feel so much better already. I'm like, okay, let's do a grounding. And I built into the grounding, you know, after we took some deep breaths and, you know, felt the planet beneath us and the ecosystem around us brought us into the idea of feeling gratitude for the work that we get to do together in this world. The work that this company is doing in this world and how beautiful and important that work is because this business brings wonder and adventure and culture to thousands of thousands of people every year. And in doing so, they're supporting thousands of families in their livelihoods all over the world. And how beautiful is that? And by the time we came together after the grounding, she's like, oh my gosh, I feel so much better. I'm like, okay. So now let's check in. The plan is changing. <laughs> let's let's make a new plan and we'll just pivot. And when we pivot again and again and again, we become really good dancers. It really is just reframing the ideas and the stories around these things. And when we get good at building some of these practices into our lives, meditation and grounding and fostering the health of the right hemisphere of our brain, Our society has set us up to be living in the left hemisphere of our brain, mostly the linear, pattern-oriented, more rigid thinking, default mode. (laughs) And it's not effective for every situation, especially emotional situations. Yes, of course, we need those things in our lives. We need to be able to be organized and plan and think ahead. And at the same time, you know, if we need both, we need balance and our society has been unbalanced. So that's the grounding part of it. But the real human check-in piece, same client. And and this is a a deeply personal side of the story because real human check-in part of the issue in our world and in the accounting industry, as we were talking about, is that we've had to hide our full selves, our our deepest human emotional selves behind this wall of professionalism, where we've been told that it is somehow ineffective to show up in our full selves, that if we bring an emotion to the table, besides just happiness and, you know, good professional courtesy, or, you know, worst case scenario, anger, People are allowed to get angry somehow, but not actually feel the emotions behind the anger. I, I've heard many times now through various various mental health professionals that anger is a secondary emotion. Anger is what we feel when we can't handle feeling what we're actually feeling. So 
when I get angry, I try to ask myself, what's behind the anger? What am I actually feeling? So by doing a real human check-in, we invite our whole selves to the table. And just this last week, I was working with this same client from the hospital where I was caring for my mother, who was not doing well. We weren't sure she was going to make it for a bit. And meeting with this client who was very, very grateful that I was willing to meet with them under these circumstances is there in a time crunch. And I'm like, you know what? We are where we are. And right now, honestly, I'm happy for the distraction and I'm happy to be able to show up in my whole self in this place in a a humane workspace environment of compassion and empathy and human care. And I built into our grounding the gratitude of being able to show up in our whole selves and support each other as whole human beings. And at the end of that grounding, one of the other team members, the accounts payable person at this business was in tears because she recently lost her dad. And just seeing me in the hospital supporting my mom brought that up for her and being able to thank her for her empathy, for her compassion, for showing up in her full self and let her know that her tears are welcome and that she's safe in this space. Those are the kinds of containers that we have the opportunity to hold for each other. And then we can also still get some amazing work done. We don't have to necessarily take a mental health day if we have hard feels. (laughs) We can just let people know, you know what, I have hard feels and stop having to protect each other from our deepest selves. How about we build that witnessing and that humanity into our businesses, into our business relationships and allow those relationships to become deeper, become more supportive. What a beautiful story. So thank you for sharing it. And a demonstration that is probably the opposite of, or or very much counter to what we have been indoctrinated to believe in, in my experience in accounting, that if we bring our full humanity, it actually opens us to have more productive, sincere, honest dialogue than if we try and bring in this buttoned up which, which ultimately just leads to what you said, stress and anger and closed off and a, a little bit of awkward silence in the meetings where no one's speaking up because <laughs> no one feels like they can really bring their whole humanity anyway. And what a what a beautiful story to show that that's all BS. It's a myth that yeah. if we do show up fully, that it actually is quite an opening up experience that we are... We're more available. We have more access to our right brain, more creative, more innovative, more access to just all of our intelligence, which is which is great and is much more than simply the analytical left brain, problem solving, linear, rote thinking components of the brain. Yeah. Well, and getting back to what we were talking about earlier about being in consensual relationship. If we're in a relationship, whether it be a client relationship or any other relationship where someone doesn't welcome our whole selves, in that situation, we are not in consensual relationship with ourselves by maintaining that relationship with that other person. We are allowed to say, you know what, this isn't a fit for me. No, thank you. If I can't be my whole self here, then I'm going to go be my whole self somewhere else. And having the self-respect to be able to say no and step away 
it's okay if it's not a fit. So meditation is definitely one and you can, you already demonstrated the, the efficacy of meditation that even just taking a couple of breaths, it's, you, you feel more grounded, more centered, more available. You said you named before your response that there are many other things that came to mind. Is, is there anything else that feels most top of mind if I were to just invite you to keep on rolling with this? Sure. I guess the other really big one is I have a very deep connection to the beautiful land that I love to call my home. I live on two acres in Southern Oregon where I grow most of my own food. And I recognize that not everyone has the opportunity to do that, especially if you live in a city, but I raise goats and chickens and rabbits for milk and eggs and meat. And I do my own butchering and I raise my own vegetables. I I had an amazing smoothie with kale that I picked out of the garden this morning. (laughs) And yeah, it's, and with homemade goat yogurt in the smoothie as well. So that, that deep relationship with my food and with this land and um, really working to be in right relationship with everything around me and asking the deep questions about what it looks like to be in deeper right relationship. How do we acknowledge that everything around us is alive in some way? You know, it's a very animist perspective that just because they don't speak human language doesn't mean that they don't have some level of awareness that maybe we don't understand fully. And just allowing ourselves room for maybe we don't know, maybe we don't fully understand, maybe science hasn't explained everything yet. And how can we make room for the other non-human living things around us and be in better relationship with everything around us? And one of the ways in which I'm doing that is in acknowledgement that the land that I live on is alive, alive to the point where it has personhood. We need to be acknowledging the personhood of all the living things around us, including the land, the water, the air that we breathe, the fire, and that we will be in better relationship with all of those things if we respect them fully. And one of the ways that I've been working to respect these amazing beings around me more fully is acknowledging that when we refer to people as property, that is slavery. So I no longer refer to land as property. Can call it anything but property. And it's a huge pronoun change in the same way that when a friend of mine, you know, or or my nibbling, for anyone who doesn't know, nibbling is the non-gender binary term for a niece or nephew. I have a fantastic 16-year-old nibbling. And when they came out as non-binary, it's a pronoun change. It takes a little bit of relearning and rewiring of our our neural synapses. And the same is true with the property word, not referring to land as property when, you know, that's just, that's just what we call it. What else would we call it? Well, we can call it land. We can call it home. We can give it a name. And the name that I've given to the land that I love to call my home is Wihintaga'a which is in the local Tekelma language, which I'm hoping that I'm doing it right. I, I found a book that had some Tekelma language in it, but I 
would love to meet some local Tacoma speakers. And alas, they're they're kind of hard to find to make sure that I'm doing this in a grammatically correct way and also a way that is not appropriative. I want to be very conscious and aware of cultural appropriation and make sure that I'm in right relationship with the the peoples who have stewarded these lands for millennia before white settlers came here. Wehintaga'a is to kill me from my mother, Earth. And so I basically found the local words for Pachamama. <laughs> and the intention in naming this place, Wehintaga'a, is to acknowledge the indigenous peoples and to honor them with the name that I've chosen for this place. And to also be more intentionally in right relationship with this land and to have that relationship be a family relationship so that when I'm tending to this land, I'm tending to my mother. And when others are tending to this land with me, we are tending to our mother and that makes us family. And working to develop better relationships with everything around us and Shifting that idea of property ownership has been huge for me over the last few years. And what I've realized through that transition is that this land doesn't belong to me. If anything, I belong to this land. And that is what allows me to feel belonging here. And as we're searching for meaning, and belonging in our workplaces, in our lives, in our environments, in the society. I found something in that breaking of that idea of colonialist property ownership. There's something so much deeper when we can get past that construct that I highly recommend more people investigate and look into. Well, one of the things that I suspect, Ingrid, is that one of the reasons that this connection is perpetuated is that we aren't in touch with our land as much as you are. And so it, talking about regenerative systems and regenerative agriculture, whatever it might be, you actually living where in a place where you can go outside and are watching the circle of life in action every day, it makes it so that it's not this theoretical intellectual construct and concept in your head, which is in, in my position is a little bit more challenging living in a city, right? I, I don't, I, it's a choice that I've made, but nonetheless, living in a city is not quite as accessible to raise my own, <laughs> have land and have animals that I am tending to and what I'm in touch with, what I'm, what I'm saying here is that it's a beautiful way to remind yourself that you are not separate from nature, that, that we are all nature, which is something that has been echoed to me many times. And uh, it was a note that I wanted to get to with you. I, I wanted to talk about the land that you live on and being on two acres. So I'm, I'm glad that we were able to work it into the conversation and I think there's only one more thing that I want to definitely discuss with you before we move to the very back end here. And of course, if there's anything else for you, I'm, I'm totally here for it. But I think a, a really important thing that I wanted to circle back on is what underlies anger. 
and especially for men in the workplace, I think this could be really, really important is that anger is, like you said, a secondary emotion mm-hmm. that is usually, maybe it's always, I, I don't know, perhaps it's always, it's underlying a more tender, more vulnerable emotion. So for me, what I've noticed is a lot of time anger is masking grief or shame. Those are, those are two big ones for me and especially shame. Yeah. What is, what have you noticed for yourself with regards to anger and what are some ways that you've built the capacity to be with yourself in those moments of grief or shame? Because that is one of the most important skills in my estimation that we can cultivate. Yeah. So I'm thinking about several things, particularly in relation to grief and shame, but there are other emotions that I I feel like anger can mask also. Mm -hmm. And it might vary from person to person because I think grief and shame are not the two that come up for me the most. Since I've been working on recognizing, oh, hey, I feel kind of angry. What, What am I actually feeling? And like asking myself that question. The time that I most recently felt angry it was because a boundary had been violated and it was a boundary that I communicated clearly. And it wasn't that it was intentionally violated. The person, you know, didn't, you know, go in to just sweep through the boundary, but I was afraid and didn't understand and felt betrayed. And the fear was the fear that If I got vulnerable and talked with this person about it and really shared how I was feeling, that it might be met with defensiveness or turn into an argument, you know, a lot of of challenging interpersonal dynamics and really needing to process through, okay, so what's the worst case scenario? Worst case scenario, they won't receive it well. How can I set us up for success by holding the container of a conversation that needs to happen about a violated boundary in the best way so that it doesn't happen again. We can both learn and grow and heal through it and have this challenge become an opportunity. And the best way for me to do that was to be open and vulnerable in my emotions as best as I could in that moment in trying to be impeccable in my words and really being in those emotions behind the anger rather than just having my anger come out because yeah if we're being verbally violent with someone cussing them out (laughs) they're probably going to get defensive the anger (laughs) sets us up for failure so in that moment though i guess there might have been a little bit of grief for the 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 violated boundary and The thing that a lot of people don't realize about grief, and actually I learned this from Shirzad Shamin's fantastic book, Positive Intelligence. He talks about how pretty much all of our quote unquote negative emotions are perpetuated by the saboteurs in our head. Those little voices, those niggling voices in the backs of our heads that do all that negative self-talk. And that the the sadness, the shame, the fear are mostly saboteur-based. And the one that he gives exception to is grief. Because grief is an expression 
of love. We are allowed to grieve the passing of things. And that we need to do that. However, in our current emotionally pent up society, we have done so much to avoid the pain of grief that we've distanced ourselves from our death rituals. Something that is natural and will come to us all, we push as far away as we possibly can rather than making it sacred and holy and part of our day-to-day lives, rather than having it be a holistic part of our being. And it's not working for us. It's not healthy. And in order to heal our culture, we need to get better at grieving. We need to be inviting each other to grieve, like I was talking about in that conversation with the client and how she had just lost her dad. And letting her tears be welcome and normal in that space was so important rather than being like, oh, you need a moment. We'll, we'll you know, come back when you're ready. Go, go hide yourself. And we're going to talk about business. Why would we do that? <laughs> that is inhumane. <laughs> Let's really put the first priorities first and recognize that the first priorities are being in right relationship with each other and our environment. So when we get into those conversations around anger and grief and shame, grief, I feel we need to invite to the table. Shame, I really like the way that Brene Brown talks about shame in Daring Greatly, because Brene Brown is a shame specialist (laughs) and she differentiates between guilt and shame. And she talks about how guilt is a helpful emotion. We can learn from guilt. We learn and grow. Whereas shame isn't really helping anyone. Because when we're in shame, we're spinning in our shame. It defines us. So guilt is, oh, shoot, I screwed up. I made a mistake. Whereas shame is, I am a screw up. And we allow our mistakes to define us. And we assign our personality to them. And then we perpetuate the same mistakes over and over and over again, because we've trained our brains to think that this is who we are rather than something we did. So when we feel like we're in a shame situation, working to shift the shame into guilt so that we can learn and grow and shift to a positive and try again. And that involves getting into our right brain, being in the present moment, the emotions of the present moment and our awe and wonder at being alive and gratitude practice that we have this present moment, even if it's a hard present moment, rather than just the linear left side of the brain that is constantly planning for the future and basing that plan for the future on our emotional memories of the past. Yeah. That makes it so that our future is our past recreated and that's not working for us. No, it is not. And I'm really glad that you brought up the distinction between guilt and shame. It's something that I want to underline here again, because it's, it's been really helpful for me and I'll, I'll rephrase it in my words. Guilt would be something like I did a bad thing 
So there's definitely an opportunity to learn there. It's signposting you to, okay, that wasn't in alignment with my values. I don't want to do that thing again. Whereas shame is I am bad. And that's mm -hmm. an identity level. It's very fragile. And there's, there's not a lot of wiggle room there and uh, usually leads to all sorts of armoring up and not allowing ourselves to be our full humanity. So mm -hmm. I think it's really important to put a microscope on that. And something else that I've come to learn about shame is that its grip dissipates on us as soon as we speak it out. So for yes. example, if I am ashamed that, which I was for a long time, that I am, let's just say, awkward at flirting with women. If I just say I am really awkward at flirting with women, the vice loosens up immensely, if not altogether. And that doesn't apply to only that. It could be anything that we are internally ashamed of. So I have gotten in the really great habit of just talking about whatever I, <laughs> yeah. whatever I have felt ashamed of in, in my past. I speak openly about it and it's, there's less and less and less charge the more I move on with my life. Well, and clearly that worked out for you since you've got an amazing wife and a son on the way. So <laughs> <laughs> yes, amen to that. Amen yeah. to that. Yes. Beautiful. So Ingrid, is there anything that we haven't spoken about so far today in this incredible wide ranging conversation so far that you would like to bring into the conversation now? I guess the, the main thing that I would love to add to the shame discussion briefly before we move on is how much of this has been programmed into us from a very young age. How many of us over and over again heard the words shame on you as children? It was a spell that was cast on us. <laughs> the words, they call it spelling for a reason. Words have power. And our parents were casting shame on us. And so it's no wonder that we've grown up in a shameful society. <laughs> and so just building awareness around that and working to shift it and having that awareness. I'm so excited for you, Mike, because you're going to be an amazing dad. <laughs> and not have to perpetuate those cycles for the next generation, be able to teach them better ways of being and connecting as whole human beings who are allowed to be seen and witnessed. And sure, there's going to be hard stuff too. It's, it, it's, it's really challenging to grow up in this world completely trauma-free. And there's no sense in making it harder. <laughs> So giving ourselves the space to reflect on our own childhood and the things that were said to us that maybe weren't effective for our very young brains in those formative years, how were we programmed to think? And how has that influenced the habit of our self-talk? And how can we shift that self-talk with our conscious intention? And there are some amazing books out there. Positive Intelligence by Shirzad Shamin is one of them. If there is negative self-talk, coming back to the accounting and finance side of things, around money, The Soul of Money by Lynn Twist is an amazing book. And also The Art of Money by Barry Tesler is an amazing book. 
And those can really, really help to shift the self-talk around money and finance. And just starting to look more deeply at our programs, our assumptions, and asking ourselves, what do we want to create? Who do we want to be? Because we get to make it up as we go. Well, that's a, a beautiful way to move towards the back end here, Ingrid, and, and thank you for bringing that up. So I have just a couple more questions for you, including the question that you asked me, your favorite question. And in the screening, I always ask what's one question you'd love to be asked. And you generously gave me a wonderful question. So now I return the serve that you served to me. What is your superpower? Thank you, Mike. This is my favorite question to ask people. So when you ask me what question I want to be asked, I'm like, oh, I don't get asked my favorite question very often. <laughs> my superpower is manifestation. I believe that we create the world around us with our thoughts, choices, words, and actions. So we might as well work to create a world that we want to live in and be the people that we want to be. That said, there's been some interesting things coming up just in recent months around my superpower in that over the last six months, I actually just this last month wrapped it up. I was in a six-month coaching program with Lynn Twist and Sarah Vetter called the Sophia Circle all around leadership and the divine feminine. And any ladies listening to this podcast, go to the Soul of Money Institute and get on their mailing list so that you can be aware of the next time this comes around because they'll be doing it again this coming year. I think it starts in October. So sign up is probably in August or September or something like that. And the guest speakers that we had in this amazing six-month program blew my mind. We had Lewa Bowie, who's a Nobel laureate. We had Jill Bolte-Taylor, who is the author of My Stroke of Insight and Whole Brain Living. She's a cellular neural anatomist who had a stroke and got to experience what it feels like when the left hemisphere of one's brain shuts down and wrote all about it. And it is fascinating. And Marianne Williamson, who ran for president in our last presidential election and recently announced that she's running again in the next one. So that's exciting. And Reverend Deborah Johnson, who is an absolutely amazing social justice activist. She's been doing activism, I think, since she was a teenager as, as a Black woman minister, <laughs> a Black woman lesbian minister, all of these pieces, you know, coming together to to just so much amazing insight. And in the call with Rev D, Reverend Deborah Johnson, she was asking this group of 50 women about our earliest recollections that we were taught. What were, what were we taught about power when we were very, very young from our earliest recollections? And she was giving us sentence stems along the lines of, people who have power are, and people who don't have power are, and power is. And the very last one that she gave us was people who are afraid of their own power are. And I was one of the members of our group that was in the fishbowl who was supposed to speak the answers to these sentence stems aloud for the group. And when it came around to me for that last sentence stem, I said, people who are afraid of their own power are me speaking from that earliest recollection of what is power. 
And I was not the only one in the fishbowl who said that. Another member of my small group within the Sophia Circle also had the same response. And when we were reflecting on it later that week in our small group, turned out that another member of our small group also said the same thing. So I'm wondering how many women in this entire group of 50 women said the same thing. And I got the opportunity to ask Reverend Deborah Johnson about this and, you know, saying, you know, just the realization, you know, I've, I've learned so much more about power. We were talking earlier about the idea of power over versus power with or power to, and, you know, what is power, but, you know, I grew up in a power over system and we learn to be afraid of things when we're young by watching the adults around us and seeing what they're afraid of. And I had the realization in this conversation with Rev D that I learned to be afraid of my power because the adults around me were afraid of my power. How do we heal this? And she said, well, we start by naming it. That's internalized oppression. And that blew me away because prior to that conversation, just a couple months ago, I thought that those words, internalized oppression, weren't for me as a white-bodied person. And that leads back to what you were talking about earlier, Mike, around some of these things around being cis white male and, you know, the healing that all of us have to do. We have all been swimming in this fishbowl of toxic colonialism, patriarchy, and institutionalized racism. And it has been impacting all of us. Equal opportunity, doesn't matter what color your skin is, we are being harmed by these constructs. And Rev D held up the mirror for me to show me, yeah, those are those constructs having an impact on you, that that's what you were taught by the adults around you. And it blew me away. And it was later that week that I was talking with another coach, Frenchman, which if anyone's looking for a fantastic coach who focuses on creatives and using art to bring out the creative side of all of us, she is wonderful and a close friend of mine. And I was telling her about this revelation and she asked me the question, so what are they afraid of? And I was like, well, they're afraid of my power. And she said, yeah, yeah, yeah. What's your power? And usually I would have said manifestation is my superpower. But in the context of what it was that they're afraid of, what came out of my mouth was change. I am change and they're afraid of change. I am not afraid to tear the system down if it is unjust, inequitable, or unsustainable. And that scares the pants off of people who are used to that system and have habits based in that system and who don't know what the new system's gonna look like. And when people are afraid, they do scary things. Hurt people hurt people, heal people heal people. And since that realization and that shift of recognizing my power is change, I've been stepping into my power more effectively because I've recognized that when I'm present, whether I'm trying to or not, I hold up a mirror for people of the deep work that they have to do. 
And if they're avoiding that work, I make them uncomfortable. And I often have people telling me that I'm intimidating. And I've realized through this that no, I'm not intimidating. They feel intimidated and that's fine. They probably feel that way because they're avoiding something. That is not my fault and I am done apologizing for it. And so, yeah, just in the last couple of months, I have stepped into my superpower in a new way. And it is a constantly evolving wild ride. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, this has been such a great conversation, Ingrid. Thank you again for another powerful story. And there's something I wanted to bring in in my own experience here. The, The sentence stems that you brought in around filling in the blank that which are really helpful at illuminating the stories that we've carried from probably a young age. Power is blank. People who have power are blank. I have done the same thing with money. You can use it for as a sentence stem for a lot of things, but I have taken a course around, it's called Money Work. It's a, a former podcast guest of mine by the name of Nadieshta Tarnchevsky. She's based in Berlin. And we started with those sentence steps. People who have money are blank. People who don't have money are blank. Money is. And there's lots of internalized stories that we have and things that I was hiding from for sure that I have been slowly but surely integrating into my life because they are important. If we hide from them, then they are perpetuated. And that's how we are in the society that we're in today. Doing the work around that is a way that we can end these cycles and, and break the stories. So I I appreciate you bringing that in with power. I invite folks who are tuned in right now to do that with yes. money or whatever the thing is that has a lot of charge for you. There's, there's work that can be done there that can really be foundational. So in your case, it's your superpower is not manifestation, it's change and I'm done apologizing it. And you really get to step into your full being. That's what I'm hearing from you. You're stepping into your full being unapologetically. What a beautiful thing. Thank you. I still like to say my superpower is manifestation because it puts the positive spin on change. <laughs> yeah. Yes. It's both. Let's have them both, right? Why not? No, exactly right. Well, I just have one or two more questions for you, Ingrid. What is an ordinary everyday moment that brings you great joy? Oh, ordinary everyday moment that brings me great joy. The first thing that I do, I guess I'll just kind of walk you briefly through my morning routine. When I wake up in the morning, the first thing I do is put on Joe Dispenza's morning meditation while I'm still laying in bed. And then I get up out of bed after that and, you know, do whatever I need to do in the bathroom. And then first thing I'm outside letting my goats out. Now I've got a goat that needs to be milked. So I'm milking a goat first thing in the morning, letting my chickens out. I've been having to unplug the electric chicken door that is solar operated at night because there was a bobcat that was waiting for the restaurant to open at dawn and that was not working. So now I unplug it so that I get to let the chickens out in the morning, but they put themselves away at night. But yeah, just first thing, being outside caring for the animals that I'm responsible for and being on the land, breathing the air, opening my awareness to this place. That is the main thing that brings me great joy. And just even right now, looking out 
my office window at a beautiful hill that is covered in old oaks and walking up that hill with my little herd of goats is i mean that oak grove is like a cathedral to me it's 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 church <laughs> so yeah deep connection with this place brings me great joy well, the final question before I actually get to my final question, I'll I'll make sure I link to the in, in the show notes to all the places that folks can connect with you at Accounting Alchemy Network. I'll link to your LinkedIn. Are there other places that you would like to point folks towards? A bit. So I guess just just being aware that my websites and my LinkedIn are probably woefully out of date. <laughs> Most of my <laughs> clients find me by pure synchronicity. And that's working really, really well for me. Uh, if anyone has not yet read The Surrender Experiment by Michael Singer, I highly recommend it. I'm, I'm basically in perpetual trust fall with the universe at this point and don't do a whole lot of marketing. But if someone wants to go take a look at my websites, priestessofprofits.com is the one that is mostly focused on the work that I do with the tourism activities industry. And ingridedstrom.com is kind of my larger portfolio of public speaking and the work that I do with accounting professionals. And yeah, LinkedIn, those are all great ways to get a hold of me. Beautiful. Well, I'll, I'll make sure to link to that and the many amazing resources and humans that you mentioned in the show notes. And the final question that I ask Ingrid, which is another one that you happened to ask me today. Every question I ask my guests to close, what does it mean to you to live a meaningful life? Mm. I think similar to you, it's really about connection and recognizing that connection is very individual to each of us. We're looking for slightly different things and that's okay. And for me, connection is being in right relationship with all things in all ways. So being in right relationship with my home, my belongings, and when I say my belongings, I mean that we are in relationship. We have mutual belonging, that they belong with me and I belong with them. It's not a belong to or power over kind of situation that we can be in right relationship with the environment and people and animals. And with that, it's the power of story that we as human beings, one of the main things that differentiates us from other brain possessing entities on this planet is that we ascribe meaning and story to just about everything. And sometimes we forget that we're the ones writing those stories. And so as we're looking for meaning, recognizing that we can find meaning in everything and that we get to decide what that meaning is, that that's a consent conversation. We get to decide what kind of relationship we want to be in with ourselves, with others, and with everything around us. And we get to write our own story of what this amazing, crazy universe is and does and means. And that it's Sometimes we get to compare stories and learn and grow from each other's stories and cross-pollinate those ideas. And that's connection also and helps to evolve our various stories 
and that we don't have to take anyone else's story wholesale. And we also don't have to live with stories that don't feel good to us, that we can change those stories. And sometimes that means accepting certain things and just giving them different meaning. Things like death, which is a topic that a lot of people don't want to talk about. It makes people uncomfortable. What if it didn't have to? What if we could give it different meaning? So, yeah, there's a lot of meaning. <laughs> mm. Well, thank you so much, Ingrid, for just so many different things we covered today. The wisdom, the ability to talk about so many things that are really important and alive, both for me and in my estimation for us as a collective, as a species. And I have been on the receiving end of some of those challenging questions that are forcing me to look at some of those blind spots and areas that I've been avoiding in my life. And I, I just love to hear that you are more and more living into being that way, being that change and not apologizing for it. Just saying this is, we need, this is important. It's imperative upon us to look at these things. Otherwise we are doomed. And I'm not, I'm not going to hide from that. And you're not going to hide from that if you're talking to me. And it's done so in a, in a loving way, which I think is really powerful that it's not, you're not pointing the finger or using shame or weaponizing any of this stuff, but, but rather you're surfacing these really existential challenges that we need to look at, that we really do need to look at. And I think this conversation has highlighted so many of these different things in a palatable way that also is full of practical wisdom and insight that can help us start to rewrite these stories that we are talking about, to live in a regenerative society in all of the ways and not just around what we eat, but the financial systems that we operate in and racial injustice and what if we really truly lived in a world that no one had to go hunting for belonging, that we did all feel that that internal sense of belonging, no matter where we are, what a, what a beautiful world that would be. And that's something that I feel into when you and I join forces and congregate. So I'm really grateful that we were able to make this conversation happen, that we were able to join forces. This has been an incredibly rich conversation. So I, I really appreciate you taking the time bearing with me on some of the technical difficulties. And yeah, I just, I, I really appreciate you, Ingrid. I'm grateful that we've connected. My pleasure, Mike. This has been such an amazing conversation and I'm grateful for the opportunity to come and talk with you. I'm so glad that we finally got to do this. Yeah. And cheers to many more future collaborations together. And in the meantime, wishing all of you, the listener, a wonderful rest of your day or evening. Take good care and lots of love. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to Mike's Search for Meaning. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, share this episode with your friends, and leave a review. I look forward to seeing you next time, my friends. And until then, stay safe, stay well, and keep living with purpose. Peace.